0: Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show in which we explore the mystery of the human personality through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner, producer of the show, and our special guest today is Beatrice Chestnut. That's right. Beatrice is back with the episode that many of you have been hitting me up via Instagram and DMing me about. Enneagram Ones. That's right. We're talking Enneagram Ones today with Master Teacher Beatrice Chestnut. This is a great conversation. You're going to love it. Before we get to the conversation, however, let me introduce the host of our show who has an exciting announcement for us. Ladies and gentlemen, the host of our show, Ian Cron. Hey, Anthony. Hey, Ian. Guess what? Tell me. We have a
1: very exciting announcement.
0: All right. Well, fill us in.
1: All right. Well, if you haven't already heard... This week, we launched a brand new exclusive subscription called the Typology Institute Membership.
0: Oh, tell me more.
1: Well, there's a lot of incredible Enneagram information out there. You know that. Um, Your for, book
0: being one of them. Thank Typology you. Podcast being another. Thank you
1: very much. But <laughs> yeah. while listening to podcasts and, and reading books is great. Sure. Folks need to engage deeper with the Enneagram if they truly want to experience the, the, the transformation their heart really yearns That's for. That's right. Yes. Right? Yes. And it's difficult to do on your own. So we've created the Typology Institute membership to help folks deepen their understanding of the Enneagram and give them a space to ask questions, connect with others, and to develop into the highest expression of themselves.
0: I love it. So let's tell the people what they get with this Typology Institute membership.
1: Well, why don't we do that? Well, every month you'll receive the following exclusive content. Okay. First, you get a members-only podcast episode. All right. The first month, you'll remember, was all about the Enneagram and trauma, yes. which folks told us was
0: fantastic, helpful. We got and so much great feedback. From yeah, that. we
1: did. You'll also get to join me, yours truly, for a live town hall Q and A session every month. Every month, where you get to ask me questions and discuss that month's podcast episode or whatever wow. you know, is important I love this. to you. Yeah. Finally. I'm going to send you an exclusive newsletter with informative and entertaining resources all about the Enneagram, personality, and conscious living.
0: Ooh. Okay, so let's tell the folks how they get this.
1: Well, why don't we? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right now, anyone who joins will become a founding member, Mm -hmm. which means you can get in at a discounted price, which is only $12. Dollars a month Oof. instead of $15 a month, uh, which it will do uh, after this uh, sort of trial period. So yeah. again, you know, anyone who joins is going to become a founding member on the, you know, on the ground floor, That's this fantastic. Thing, which means you can get in at a discounted price of only $12 per month instead of $15. Per month. Amazing. Here's how they get in on it. Yeah. Visit Typologyinstitute.com slash membership. I hope you'll all join. It's gonna be
0: wonderful. Man, that sounds fantastic, Ian. And just to make sure you all get that again, that's Typologyinstitute.com slash membership. All right, let's get to this episode with our very special return guest, Beatrice Chestnut. Beatrice
1: Chestnut, Enneagram master, business consultant, psychotherapist, coach, uh, teacher, and the author of my favorite Enneagram book, The Complete. Enneagram 27 paths to greater self-knowledge. Welcome to Typology.
2: Thank you. It's so good to be here. I always love talking to you guys.
1: Well, uh, we love talking to you and this is a great excuse for us to spend time together. So um, I'm delighted that you're here. So we are going to embark on a four-part series talking specifically about ones, twos, sixes, and nines. And today uh, we're going to talk about those great people, The Ones, Enneagram Ones. I want to throw a, a, a new signifier by you, a new name for The Ones. I know that you've played with names too, and I, I think that's okay. Mm-hmm. Typically, people call them the perfectionists, but you know, I have had more Ones come to me and say, can you please give us a different name? <laughs> that is the only name on the Enneagram that just sounds so pejorative and negative. Of all the types, the last thing you need to give us is another reason to criticize ourselves. You know, can you, can you, can you, <laughs> right? Can you come up with another name? Have you had that experience <laughs> with ones
2: too? Um, I have been in a slightly different context. And that is when I started teaching the subtypes the a lot. And I really started teaching, there's really three different kinds of ones. Mm-hmm. and And first of all, there's only one of the three that's more of a perfectionist. Uh, but I also, as you know, I like to bust stereotypes and myths about the types. Uh, and I think it's really a stereotype that mm. ones are all ones are perfectionistic in every way. Uh, I think even the ones that are more, would even define themselves as perfectionistic, will say they're not perfectionistic in every area of their life. Um, and so, yes, uh, and, and I think the, the tricky part is, Uh, Probably any name we give the ones, they'll find a way to criticize themselves (laughs) or or
3: find find fault with it.
2: (laughs) So if we're trying to find a a name that has no criticism attached, that might be hard. But uh, I do agree it's, it's good to revisit these things. And that's why I always say it's the perfectionist or the reformer.
3: Mm -hmm. Uh, because
2: reformer is also one that they they relate to a lot. Although, as you know, in my books, I don't even use names because of exactly this issue. Mm. I think sometimes they, they cause more problems than they solve. Uh, although when I do an introduction to the Enneagram, yes. I often do use the names because, of course, people need to kind of start to make sense of these things. And, and the name gives you a little bit of an identifier to start to understand what we're talking about.
1: I agree. I, uh, in my intro courses, definitely use them. Um, I do tell people that they have limited, uh, you know, helpfulness. Uh, I, the name I've been calling uh, ones lately are, are The Improvers. And um, that has been helpful for a lot of ones. I I think it does take into account the different subtypes, you know, because Mm -hmm. though they may focus their attention on improving different things, I think they uh, are all self-improvement or other improvement types. Uh, And so we're going to jump into that. Um, So we'll talk about subtypes in a moment, but for now, let's just talk about perhaps a few things that all ones share in common, okay? Well, do you, you know, let's sort of banter that back and forth. What, in your experience, have, do all ones share in common?
2: I would say an overall perspective that things can always be made better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and I think an overall perspective uh, that it's good to do the right thing and it's good to spend a little bit of time figuring out what the right thing might be in order to do the right thing.
1: Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, the uh, One of the things that came to me is, is, is obvious. It's that they all share the passion of anger. Yes. Right. Uh, albeit they express it uh, in, uh, you know, different ways, right? It appears in their lives in different ways. It's expressed in different ways, but I would say, and this is a phrase I use often, right? And I don't know if I got it from Yubi or from who I got it from, maybe Naranjo. I don't know, but uh, you know, that one's uh, the passion of all types is the source of their suffering.
2: Yes. Yes. In fact, the root of the word passion, the Latin root means to suffer.
1: Yes. Yes. And I I think that's so important for people to know that this interior emotional motivation or atmosphere uh, in their inner terrain, that they uh, are, until they start to do their work, they're unaware of, right, as the, the source of so many of the the behaviors, the way they think, the way they feel, the way they show up for life. Um, and that familiarity with the passion is so critical. Being able to recognize when it's taken the wheel, right? Yes. Is that, do you yes. want to elaborate on that anymore?
2: Yes. I, I think you're really right. We can't emphasize enough how much the passion is really the core Uh, kind of the core motive force at the heart of the personality. uh, And that when you're using the Enneagram for self-development, a really big part of the work is becoming more aware of how the passion operates in you uh, and more conscious of, you know, when it's driving you and how it drives you. And uh, to the extent that you remain unconscious of that, often it's harder to get out of some of your more intransigent patterns.
1: Mm. How about this for another characteristic of ones? Tell me if you think this sort of covers the spectrum of all of them. Uh, And that is that they, they have judging and comparing minds. That's particularly true for one of the subtypes, I think. But do you think it goes across the subtypes?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I get kind of sensitive to language in terms of what words go with what types. I Mm -hmm. think of comparing mind as a four term, a type four thing. Um, So I think of judging mind definitely uh, more for one. It's sort of like constantly judging, like, where is this relative to where it could be? Uh, Where is that relative to what, what might be good or bad, right or wrong, better or worse? Uh, So I definitely do think there is a kind of judgmental function that that ones are always kind of doing with their minds. Yes. Yes. And
1: I think there's a shaded difference between fours and ones. I would also say and we'll do this when we perhaps have a conversation one day about fours is that in my experience or my hunches is that fours have the second loudest inner critic. And in, you know, they are very, very hard on themselves, and part of that is driven by the passion of envy. Um, and uh, but I, in my experience, of course, they share a line here on the Enneagram. But uh, we'll get to that when we when we talk about fours. And of course, you know, there are uh, ones that uh, have sort of fourish qualities as as well, right? So we'll and we'll get to that when we hit on on some some subtypes. Anything else you would say that we could characterize all ones with?
2: I guess I would say that sort of the moral dimension of life is more present for ones than it might be for other types. Mm. Uh, it, 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 there's a kind of, you know, a, a value of morality or um, integrity that I would say probably goes along with all ones. Mm. Qu- quality might be another word.
1: Oh, interesting. Mm. Okay. So it's interesting. I have a, uh, uh, I've had several encounters with ones who have one of those, when I say, when I talk about the word integrity, they often will tell me, I've had several tell me they have that, one of those signs, those wood signs, you know, that they write on behind their desk on the wall with the single word integrity on it. (laughs) Right? That that concern yeah. with virtue, integrity, uh, being good—these uh, are these are themes that that seem to be important in the lives of ones. And I think, and tell me what you think of this. And this again, maybe Naranjo, that that uh, ones typically are in a perpetual argument with reality.
2: Yes, that's a that's a good way to put it. I, the way I've thought of it is they are often in opposition to what's happening.
3: (laughs) Mm,
1: Yes.
2: Yes. (laughs) Or they're going against, they're going against what is, you know, because they're always seeing how it's not quite right. It's hard to accept what is in the moment and not want to tweak it or, see how it's falling short somehow Mm. uh so there is this and and i think that's part of what the anger is kind of about it's like a a going against what's happening or the way things are because it doesn't you know it's not it it somehow rubs them the wrong way but i think the way you put it is a, a nice way to put it yeah
1: i think that and i think where that that aphorism may come from is this reality that the world is imperfect. It will always be imperfect. There will never be enough time, resources, or talent to fix everything. And even though I don't think most ones who, I mean, if they've done a little bit of work, they will say, I don't have any delusions. I know I can't perfect everything, but that doesn't mean I won't try, right? It's like, but they don't believe that they're ever going to achieve perfecting themselves or others or the world, but that doesn't mean they're not going to throw their all their energy into trying. So I think that's a, another yes, and I have feature. A, Go ahead.
2: Yes, and one thing one thing I would add to what you're saying is I have a friend who's a one who says you know every once in a while I do experience something being absolutely perfect, oh, and it's great. an amazing feeling wow <laughs> right so it's like it's like they're like you're saying they they kind of recognize the difficulty of actually making something perfect but why would they keep in the game you know so fervently if they didn't once in a while feel this sense of just inner peace or ecstasy when it's like everything comes together and it's perfect. So I have a friend who says he has he experiences those moments. They're not very frequent, but when he does, it's like, oh, that's what I'm living for. It's like really getting it there uh, and how good that feels.
1: Yes. And I think it's almost a transcendent spiritual experience, right? I have a friend of mine who is a perfectionist and also a brilliant uh, cellist, New York Symphony cellist, and he has had some moments where he felt in the aggregate the whole orchestra had captured uh according to their standards had captured Mahler in Mahler's fifth it's never going to be done better and it was a transcendent mm. experience right and i yes. i think you know yes. that's that can Definitely. be beautiful do you have a favorite one story i have a favorite one story um
2: I, it probably would be hard to narrow it down to one <laughs> or any, um, any I story. I think I have a lot of, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I have a lot of sort of smaller one stories rather than one big one because I, you know, I grew up with two ones. Uh,
1: oh. <laughs> yes. oh, this is going to be a good conversation.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm glad I mentioned this early on. Um, so I have one sibling, and my, that one sibling is a one, and my father is also a one. So mm. in a family of four, a nuclear family of four people, 50% of us are ones. Oh. Uh, and so I've sort of lived the life of being very uh, close up uh, to the one personality uh, from a daughter point of view and a sister-sibling rivalry point of view. Mm. Wow. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well. yeah. I, uh, I have a friend um, named uh, Lee, and Lee tells a story I've never forgotten, and he is, he actually, listen to this, is an ethics professor.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Can you imagine? What a perfect, like, what what a perfect role, totally. right, for, for, perfect. for a one? He um, tells a story. He grew up in a very religious and uh, fundamentalist kind of background in the South, which only as you can imagine, exaggerated some of the difficulties for for a one. But he talks about when he was about 18 years old, driving down the highway and noticing that he was going 57 instead of 55. And he was beset with anxiety, actually, about going to hell for going 57 instead of 55. You know what I mean? And, and it just, he tells the story so, it's very funny the way he tells the story because <laughs> he's done a lot of work. He's done a lot of work. and um, But he also talks about it with a great deal of sadness that he spent a good number of years with so much guilt, shame, uh, the feeling of inadequacy, of uh, being bad, right? That'd be a, a big theme. For doing things as small as going a couple of miles over the speed limit and then, you know, setting the cruise control to never go over 55. Wow. Well.
0: That's, like, that's called Church of Christ.
1: Right? <laughs> <laughs> that's not called a one. That's called Church of Christ, right? Okay, well, we just lost a portion of our audience. Way to go, Anthony. I'll beep that out.
3: <laughs>
1: well, let's talk about the subtypes of ones because we don't, as you said, I think, For example, when most teachers are presenting the Enneagram for the first time, they tend to describe self-preservation ones. And I want to combat the stereotype that 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 is the only kind of one there is. So very briefly, let's just go through the different subtypes because, and, and I want you to elaborate on this, here's what I love about subtypes. Number one, and I do this, I have to do this all the time when I do workshops. Someone will come up to me and they'll say, Man, I listen to all those types and I, I just don't really identify with all of them. I kind of see myself as a one, maybe as a seven, you know, what whatever the case may be. And I say, Okay, it's time for us to dig into subtypes. Um, because chances are you may be a counter type and we'll talk about what that means, or you may be some other nuanced expression of the type that I just described, which is had to be brief for purposes of this workshop, you know? Um, so let's just dive right in. Let's talk for a moment about self-preservation ones. Why don't you jump in and get us started?
2: Okay. So, um, self-preservation ones And here we're talking about the passion of anger mixed with the self-preservation instinct. Mm -hmm. Um, Often, this is the way I like to set the scene. Often the self-preservation one has had a history where in their childhood, when they were quite young, they had an experience of feeling like they were responsible for creating stability and safety in the whole family.
3: Mm. Sometimes Mm. at
2: age four or five. So imagine someone who has kind of the weight of the world on them. And it's like, if I don't get everything right, then, you know, we might not survive. It's a little mm-hmm. bit like that. So I think self-preservation ones are the most self-critical. Mm hmm. Uh, least critical of others. So if we seek sort of a spectrum between being very critical of yourself, not quite as critical as others, still critical, but not as much as you are of yourself, then the one-to-one one one, or the sexual one is more critical of other people and less critical of themselves. Again, still self-critical, but less critical. That that balance is different. So the self-preservation one also represses anger the most. So this is someone who, thinks that anger is bad
3: mm-hmm.
2: and doesn't want to be bad or wrong is really monitoring themselves the most to not make mistakes or to do everything right. And so they repress anger and through the, through the magic of reaction formation. And you know, that's the main defense mechanism of the yes. type one, which interesting, interestingly makes you go unconscious to a threatening emotion and express its opposite. Yes. So, self-preservation ones, um, the heat of the the heat of anger gets transmuted into warmth. Yes. So instead of being angry or looking angry or expressing anger, they're friendly, they're benevolent. They're trying to do the right thing, but inside they're putting an incredible amount of pressure on themselves and they're quite anxious. Yes. Mm -hmm. So a lot of anxiety as well as not as much consciousness, Of the anger. So, of course, when we don't feel a feeling, it leaks out in a passive version. So, a little more leaking out of the irritation, of the resentment uh, in a sarcastic tone. But because there's more of a taboo on expressing anger, uh, they are both more warm and friendly and sweet, but also. Uh, very tense and holding back that anger and trying to do every little thing right. It's like being more mm. of a control freak because it's like trying to get everything right in your environment. And they think of themselves as very imperfect. Again, they're really self-critical and always trying to make themselves better.
1: Yes. And so this is why we we sometimes could say that they're the onest of the ones, right? They're 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 kind of this type that that it's the person we immediately think of when we think of ones, it, which isn't necessarily a good thing. I'm just saying this is the one that everybody tends to think, okay, this captures what one is. But well, we're going to debunk that myth in just a moment. I, I would say just a couple of things, too, that strike me about them. Um, the first one is, as you mentioned, reaction formation. I have a friend who is a self president one and unfortunately hasn't done a lot of work. And what here's my experience of them, and I've seen it in action uh i once gave a uh, a talk to a group of people about a 30 minute address and afterwards uh she came up to me and with this very um sort of tight lip smile and mm. uh, and she said or thin-lipped i should say smile and she said boy that was such a good talk you did something i don't know how to do you you spoke much longer than i would have but you seemed to really get away with it you know what I mean? And so it was, <laughs> it was this kind of criticism veiled behind this facade of flattering me or, or of giving me a compliment. But I was like, and when I'm around her, I can actually palpably feel the reaction formation, the repression wow. of the negative feeling and the bringing up of the opposite, which is what I just described, right? It's repressing this kind of, oh, irritation that I had mm-hmm. gone too long Brought up and told me that how much she admired the talk, but at the same time, in polite language, mm. told me what was wrong with it.
0: Sounds like that unconscious leaking you're yes. talking about. Yeah. Yes,
1: yes, and that that was really quite an experience. And every time I'm with her, there is this sense of I'm, I almost feel sorry for her because mm. I can se- I can feel how much energy is being exerted. You Ooh. can just feel it coming off them like i'm trying so hard to be good and to be kind and to be nice and it's it's it must be exhausting for the one who hasn't done much much work i would think that
0: person pushes away people and you know ends up alone not knowing necessarily why that's such a painful thought
1: well for sure they're going to go back and review the interaction And they're going to criticize themselves for maybe not having been able to entirely mask Mm. the anger. Mm. Right. Is Mm. that your, do you think that's
2: true B? I totally agree. They, they tend to replay past interactions and question themselves, beat themselves up. Um, Don't know how aware they are of when the anger is leaking out. Mm -hmm. Um, But definitely, you know, definitely they're the type of people who replay interactions and have trouble letting things go have Mm. trouble ever being okay with anything and like one of my good friends is a self-preservation one and and he's let me know, like, life is not easy for him.
3: Mm-hmm. You know,
2: this is, a, this is a hard experience to have of always having this sense that you're doing something wrong, even while you're constantly, like, your whole focus is trying to avoid making mistakes and trying to be good and trying to get it right. But always, and again, I think it's hardest probably for the self-preservation one, always feeling like you are doing something wrong at the same time
1: now this particular one is often mistyped as a six right or they get they have the characteristic features of a six why don't you unpack that for folks just a little bit
2: yeah i think a common mistyping for self-preservation one is six especially self-preservation six because there's so much worry in anxiety Uh, And that's a common feature, a main feature of six and especially self-preservation six is being aware of constant questioning and anxiety. So definitely, I think that's a common mistype.
1: And the difference between the two is what?
2: The difference between the two is ultimately the six is more doubting and questioning everything and sort of can't really ever find certainty about what Mm. the right thing is you know it's like well maybe it's this well as soon as i think it could be that i can think of a whole bunch more doubts to have about that Mm. questions Mm. to ask yes with the one the self-preservation one it's like there's this inner standard it's like their body types it's a body's knowing Mm. of what feels right and what doesn't Mm. so the standards are often clear But it's like the standards are high and strict, and so it's hard to meet that standard. But there's a sense of confidence about knowing what's right. Yes. You know, there's not a lot of doubt and questioning there. It's like an inner confidence of like, I know what the right thing is. You know, I know what's right and wrong, and I just kind of keep not doing it right enough.
1: Yes.
0: That's a good distinction. That
1: is a good distinction. And again, uh, folks listening, you know, we're going to go over these three subtypes very, very briefly, but I I want you to know that this is why people of one type, right, uh, can appear in so many different forms. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, the reason it's important for us to unpack all the subtypes, right? And B, you know, of course, I owe you a great debt of gratitude because you, you pounded this into me and uh, over time it just became so helpful and in part because it's what the the knowing subtypes is what helped me really understand my type right Uh, I was a counter type it took me forever to figure out what I was and and until I did subtype work if I hadn't done it I never would have known I honestly would have walked away from the Enneagram going I'm not in this thing at all Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. okay let's um let's uh talk a little bit about and and this has helped me sort of delineate the subtypes of ones and with anger. Y- you mentioned earlier that the self-pressed one is the best at hiding their anger, right? Uh, right. And so what we're going to find as we talk, as we go along here, we have the self-pressed one who is brilliant at hiding their anger. Then we're going to go to the social one who half-hides their anger. And then we're going to go to the one-to-one one one who doesn't hide their anger at all. And this distinction, this distinction is fantastic, right? It really helps you understand the the, the subject. Let's move on to social ones then. Let's talk, give me a, give us a little bit of an overview from your perspective as to what, uh, what those are like.
2: Okay. And this will be a a little bit of a welcome to my world because both my brother and my father are social ones. Okay. Uh, And yeah. (laughs) So this is a one that, um, as you said, um, it, it, they they repress anger halfway. Yes. So the heat of anger turns into cool or sometimes maybe even cold. So this is a cooler character in that they, they're more intellectual. Um, they're a little bit more remote. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can feel like fives. And I think five can be a common mistyping. My brother mm. uh, from time to time says, are you sure I'm not a five? Um, because they kind of like to go off by themselves and figure and do a lot of research to figure out what the right way is to do Mm. something. Hmm. Um, and then they do it that way every time. Um, so it's this, we often say that the, uh, the, the self-preservation one is the perfectionist. This is what Naranjo says. The social one is perfect. And the, uh, one-to-one one one is perfecting other people. Mm. Uh, and yeah. So what does it mean to be perfect? Now, the social ones are not walking around saying they're perfect. So that's something that they sort of look like from the outside. And that is because they spend some time really figuring out what's the right way to do something, and then they do it that way. And, and they're less anxious than the self-preservation one because there's a kind of confidence and relaxation that comes from having discovered the right way. And, okay, now that's the way I'm going to do it. Um, and in addition to that, not only will I sort of relax because now I know I'm doing it the right way, but there's also a sense of modeling the right way for others. Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of a role model or a teacher um, kind of stance that they take on. And, and again, it's important to remember that this is often very unconscious. Um, mm. They social ones consciously are certainly not putting themselves above anyone else. And they would never say that they are superior to anyone else. However, at an unconscious level, it's as if anger gets channeled into being the owner of the truth or the Mm -hmm. owner of the right Mm -hmm. way. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Um, So there is a kind of anger or a kind of Expression of power in that, like, I know the right way and I'm going to tell you what it is. Mm. Uh, And so, from the outside to other people, they can sometimes look like know it alls or, you know, or a little bit superior or aloof or kind of outside the group, sort of showing us how it should be done. Um, And so, a little bit apart. And so, I, I like to point to this because, you know, we often think that social types. Uh, like to be in groups, right? Or they enjoy being around other people. Well, the social one is a little bit contradictory in this sense in that, uh, in that they don't necessarily feel comfortable in the middle of the group. They're a little bit more serving the group from mm. being the role model or, or showing and demonstrating what the right way is in order to help other people.
1: Yes. Mm. You know, um, another feature of this, of this uh, subtype for, in my experience as a therapist when this type is not very self- aware has not done their own inner work, they have this quality of rigidity and um yeah. and, and and so I've worked with a couple ones uh, uh he he was a nine and she was a one and by the way I don't know what it is about nines and ones but they are always finding each other and I have not entirely <laughs> figured this out yet but nines True. and ones man it's like they're uh, every time I meet a one I go are you married to a nine <laughs> You know? And 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 then they go, "Are you a psychic?" And I'm like, "No, I'm not a psychic." I was going to say
0: that 75% of the time they're like, "How did you know?"
1: <laughs> "Tell I'm, me more.
0: I'm magic." Well,
1: I mean, this rigidity comes out in marriage therapy, and I'm sure it does in relationships with other people, colleagues, other people, which is this kind of certainty about their rightness. They've done the research. They they really know. And then um Let's say one of the people in the relationship has begun to do work, and they're really starting to ask the one, "Isn't it possible you might be wrong?" And sometimes that one will come to therapy mm-hmm. and cross their arms mm-hmm. and say, "I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I, I'm right. And and he or she is the problem. I am not the problem here, right? And you, and when you try to push back on the idea that, hey, guess what? There may be." More than one right way of doing X, Mm -hmm. you know, of raising the kids or of you know blankety blank, and they go, but there isn't, there isn't, and and oftentimes that rigidity translates eventually into contempt, which then is is pretty much the sign or the signal that this relationship will not work out.
3: Yeah,
0: you know, Beatrice, as you were describing that, I was thinking, wow, that's that is a lot of rigidity and could appear really stubborn and it made me wonder how have you learned to deal like with mm-hmm. your brother with your father like, mm-hmm. how do you cope with that
2: <laughs> that's a good maybe question. coping
0: isn't the right word but how do you relate you know
2: well I would say one of the best ways or the thing that that works is humor mm-hmm. uh, I would say to my to my brother and my father's credit, they both have really good sense of humor. Mm. Uh, and when they're kind of really imposing the right way, they can be a bit humorless. Uh, but if you can bring the humor in, oftentimes that it kind of diffuses mm. this sort of tension and seriousness that there's one right way. And sometimes it's almost like you you can bring in an element of playing with things, you know, like, Mm. and loosening up a little bit, uh, but but it sort of depends on the situation and the context, because remember these are like, in my experience, it's a little bit like, these are survival strategies. Mm -hmm. Like, like part of the, part of the being rigid is if I let go, Mm. there's some survival might be threatened on some sort of unconscious level. So there is that piece of it, but I would say laughing at it. Like one time my brother came up, I was um, at his house, I was making spaghetti sauce And I was just sauteing onions, you know, to start the sauce. And he looked into the pot and he said, but they're not all the same size. All the pieces of all the pieces of onion. And I looked at him, you know, and I said, you've got to be kidding me. Right. And I started laughing, you know, Uh that like on what planet are all the pieces of onion ever going to be the same size and who cares? And it's not going to have any impact on the salt, you know? So just by laughing at it and, you know, there is a way that it kind of brings in this sense of, Oh, there is an absurdity. I mean, of course, to all of our personalities, but to that sort of view that it needs to be this way. Mm -hmm. Um, My brother um, that, you know, he lives in Germany. And so every morning, often they have rolls breakfast rolls. He always cuts it perfectly in half and then butters it where the butter is at the absolute same elevation at every single <laughs> piece of the bread. Wow. And so I'm constantly joking with him about that. And, and, well, what would happen if, you know, you only put butter on half, you know, and I think that the joking and the playfulness um, brings out his very good sense of humor and can sometimes moderate that. Um, I would say another thing is, is, um, you know, he really cares about people uh and he has grown a lot in his relationship with his wife who is a social 2 and i think just over time he's realized that he is happier when he listens and hears another point of view and really lets that in and lets it kind of moderate his own stance Mm. so that he's not so dug in and and that, you know, things get lighter, he gets happier, he feels more connected. Uh, And so I think over time he's gotten good at sort of considering more deeply another, another point of view of what's Mm. right. But Mm. I have to say this one last thing, a friend, another friend of mine's a one and he went to couples counseling since you brought that up. Um, And he said one of the things that has stuck with him most, more than anything in his life, is that he and his wife were having the same argument they always had. And at one point, uh, the counselor looked at him and said, would you rather be right or be happy?
0: Mm. So good. And Mm.
2: that really stopped him in his tracks because, but here's the thing, he had to think about it. Like, the answer was not completely clear, and I think he's still thinking about it. Like, he's still like, mm, wait a minute, is it worth it?
1: Uh. I was just going to say that, that um, and this, sort of, this is a hard truth for ones when they begin to do their work, or for social ones, which is part of them kind of enjoys um, being right and making others wrong. I mean, there's a part of them that's Mm. a a delicious kind of part of their experience. It's like, I kind of enjoy being right and
2: making you wrong. I enjoy the I told you so moment. Yes. And I think we need to really understand that as one manifestation of anger. Mm -hmm. It's that sense of Mm. like, I'm a little bit more you know, smarter, better than you. And that I see what's right. And you don't, you know, I do think that Mm. there is that being the owner of the truth, being the one that knows being the one that can, can, can know Mm. what is right. Uh, there is a kind of power in that. And it is a kind of, you know, getting over on somebody else. Uh, and again, often very unconscious, um, but sometimes maybe a little conscious.
1: Yes. Yes. Okay. (laughs) So let's, let's, um, Let's move on to one-to-one ones, right? Um, this is the countertype of the ones. And I want you just to explain to people in a sentence or two, what on earth is a countertype? You've already introduced this crazy word subtype. Now you're going to throw countertype at me. Give us just an overview of what a countertype is.
2: Sure. For each of the nine types, there are three subtypes based on these three these three instinctual drives. And for each of the nine types, one of those three is kind of upside down it Mm -hmm. goes against kind of the main energetic flow of the type or of the passion so it's like two are kind of going in one direction and one is kind of going in an opposite direction and this this one that's going in the opposite direction it's really important to know about that because it's sometimes a type that doesn't look like what many people think that type should look like Mm. uh it's a little bit uh different you know uh and so it's important to know that that that's also a one and they also have a passion of anger. It's just expressed or or acted out or related to in a different way.
1: Right. And so here's, here's a feature of this counter type one, right? The one to one, one. They're sometimes mistyped as eights. And this is crazy, right? Because we think of the, the anger of eights Really straight up man it just comes out externally it can come out in a flash um it's you know it it can be pretty intense and people don't think of ones in that way they think of always the anger being repressed or half Mm. repressed and this one is like mm -mm, man it is it is straight out there and i have had many people at a workshop say gosh, I feel like an eight or, but there's another part of me feels like a one. And this is where it's so helpful because right away when they say that I go, let's talk about one-to-one ones just for a moment and see if it feels like it's a, it's a fit for you. Um, Let's talk about why that's the case. Go ahead. Let's talk about one-to-one ones.
2: Yeah, so the countertype in the case of ones is a little bit tricky, right? Because you would think maybe the countertype is the one that's repressing anger, but because anger is repressed to some degree in all ones, even to some degree in the 1 to 1 one, it's the it's the it's the one that's not repressing anger so much, that's the countertype. And so mm. this is the 1 to 1 one. It's it's a one that um, I I'll have to say in my experience there are most one to one ones will say some of the time I'm keeping a lid on my anger because they're, you know, I'm, they're very sensitive to what's appropriate, you know, and what's, yeah. you know, and, and having an how what their impact is on others, I think different than eights where that's more of a blind spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they are sometimes putting a lid on it. But with the one to one one, many times, much of the time, they're also letting it fly. Uh, they're also, get, they, they are the ones that tend to believe that anger's not necessarily bad. Uh, the self-preservation one will think it's bad. The social one will think, oh, it's not good to get angry. But the, the one-to-one one will be like, well, sometimes you've got to get angry, or sometimes it's okay, or sometimes it's for a good cause. Uh, and it is often about perfecting others, reforming society, fixing something out there in the world. And, you know, the name is zeal. And I think mm-hmm. that's such a good, mm. you know, sense of what this is about. It's this zealousness uh, to kind of reform things or make things right. But it is a more out, you know, out there with anger kind of experience.
1: Yes. And I think uh, this is why we oftentimes call them reformers rather than per- perfectionists. Right. I think about um For example, um, maybe Nelson Mandela, right? There's this kind of need to fix broken systems, um, systems that are unjust, uh, and they have a real zeal, uh, a crusader-like quality that they they really have to uh, fix something that's broken. And therefore, this is a good thing. They're, the open expression of anger is okay because who shouldn't – who wouldn't be angry about health care? Mm. You know, uh, like, I, you know, again, I hate to throw people's names into the mix because, you know, who knows what's going on inside them. But sometimes I think of Hillary Clinton in this category, you know, this kind of where it's like, you know, the zeal for a particular thing. I think um, – that uh, where she might have struggled is that the they, mm-hmm. ones in general tend to get down into the weeds of things you know like mm-hmm. policy versus staying at 50,000 feet and delegating policy right, um, right. and th- they want to kind of have their hands in in, a, in the whole thing even down into the the, the verbiage used to describe policy um, I think that the uh, one-to-one ones, um, Have that benefit of being able to express anger outwardly, which, you know, because it is appropriate in this circumstance to, you know, sex trafficking, you should get angry. You should raise your voice. You Mm -hmm. should pound the table and um, you should feel okay when you express anger toward those who seem to be less interested in the crusade than you are. Yes.
2: Yes. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, And it's funny because there are, I think, a lot of famous examples. I think, for instance, Gandhi was uh, probably a one-to-one-one. My South African friends are torn with Mandela, whether he was social or one-to-one, but definitely mm. one or the other. And certainly young when he was younger, he was a revolutionary. You know, he was expressing more anger. Mm. Later, when he was more of the statesman, he seemed a little bit more like the social. Uh, but like, for instance, I used to teach uh, subtype workshops and used a lot of film clips. And there mm. were some great clips from the movie about Gandhi's life where you could really see that he was motivated by anger about racial injustice mm-hmm. uh, and that was kind of the core that anger was kind of the core of what drove him and of course he found you know the way to do it and in, in in these ways that were uh, nonviolent, and the way he really could inform reform society uh, by channeling that anger and there's a famous quote he has about how if you channel your anger you can change the world mm-hmm. uh, but I think probably the most clear example, if anyone really wants to study in the one-to-one-one. And again, this is just my my opinion. You can tell me what you think of it. Uh, But if anyone wants to get the documentary about Ralph Nader, yes, that guy is the picture of a one-to-one-one. And it's funny because the title of the documentary is An Unreasonable Man. Mm. uh and he is so clear and and talk about reform like in the movie they talk about how he has is responsible for more legislation like consumer protection reform legislation than any other person and he's a, as a private individual he wasn't wow. like a member of congress or anything like that um and it's funny because there was a, there's a scene in the movie where they ask him they say so you never got married And he said, yeah. And they said, why? And he said, well, I don't think I'd want to do that to anyone and like subject (laughs) them to to me all the time. And he said it was sort of like I married General Motors. Mm, Right. So if 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 the one to one one is kind of perfecting their partner and perfecting the world, it's like he was perfecting the the auto industry. Yes. And. Yeah, and he's sort kind of out there with his anger and criticism throughout the whole documentary.
1: You know, and what's so fascinating here is, let's, let's just talk about how sometimes, and again, I don't recommend this necessarily, but when you've done a lot of work with the Enneagram, you really do pick up on the somatic energy and mm-hmm. you, you can even pick it up in appearance sometimes, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and that's true for particular types where it's a little bit easier. Um, and I think, you know, it's interesting, whereas a self press one, they're more buttoned up they're, The, the appearance is, you know, there's no cat hair on that jacket. You know what I mean? Like there, <laughs> there, there is, there is no wrinkle in the shirt. And when you see Ralph Nader, he is a mess. Mm, his hair right. is all over the place. Yeah. His jacket is rumpled. His tie yeah. is half down. He seems to be absolutely disinterested, probably, in how his car looks. Mm-hmm. You, can, you know, he probably has you know papers all over. And this is where we have to get away from the stereotype.
3: Yes.
1: He looks like a rumpled nine, right? That's how you would think <laughs> of him, right? it's like if you're going to do stereotypes, well, he must be a nine. Look at the look. He just seems mm-hmm. to be out of t- no, 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 no. He his focus of attention is just so much. Much more riveted on perfecting improving reforming broken things and it's like I don't have time to be thinking about whether or not my house is perfect or, or whatever uh, it's it's really my my that energy is 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 being directed elsewhere and again, Folks, if you're if you're listening, I hope you're picking up on how important it is for you to be familiar with subtypes. Mm -hmm. That it's not you only have one third an understanding of a particular type if you aren't aware of the other two expressions. All right, let's wrap up here because I I, there's you know we're gonna we have so many different things that we're gonna do in these next uh, few episodes that we're we're working together here, and I want to just pick up on a, a theme that I hear a lot from people and. Um, we just said a lot of stuff about ones that were hard to hear, really hard to hear, painful. And if I was a one right now, uh, I would be thinking to myself, is there nothing good about me? Mm-hmm. Am, am I just, just the hardest person to get along with? Am I always going to feel alone? Am I always going to beat myself to death? And of course— The answer is no, that each of these types has its own transformational work. So this, again, is important. There's no one path fits all. Mm -hmm. The work a self-prez has to do is different from a social, is different from a one-to-one. Let's give two sentences, if we can be that short, on the transformational path for each of those types, the work they have to do. And I listen, we're not going to hit all of it. It's far more complicated. They can read your book, they can, et cetera, but let's just hit it real fast. Let's talk about special self special. Let's talk about self preservation ones. Um, what's the transformational path for them?
2: Uh, well, first of all, being less hard on themselves,
3: Mm
2: -hmm. you know, learning to turn the volume down on the inner critic, uh, to ease up on themselves. Like you said, Probably quite rightly when when ones are listening to this, they're hearing it even through their own negative filter, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, and so it's like taking in the good, you know, Mm. looking at what you do well, uh, acknowledging that you always have good intentions and giving yourself credit for that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, of course, becoming aware of anger. Uh, And not seeing it as a bad thing, seeing it all Mm. the positives of anger and seeing it Mm. as just energy and as something natural and as something that does have the power to change the world when it's accepted and channeled consciously Mm -hmm. Uh, and also working on anxiety, I think, for the, you know, and that. That comes along with being less hard on yourself, Uh, not recognizing you don't have to get every little detail perfect, recognizing that everybody's imperfect and you don't have to be perfect and just lightening up, having more fun, relaxing in the body. This is really important Mm. for self-preservation ones, because as you said, they're so tense, you can feel it just being near them. So a lot of body relaxation, a lot of having more fun, more play, more humor, more relaxation.
1: All right, talking about uh, social ones here, I, I think part of the transformational work for um, social ones is releasing their grip on this presumption that um, there are two ways to do things, right? Uh, their way and the wrong way. And, yes. and, and this, this need, this ability, I think when, when I meet a social one who can say, you know, the other guy might be right. You know what I mean? When they can say that I'm, I'm I can go, okay, you have defrosted it a little bit. You're, you're not as rigid. You're not as icy in your, um, you're not as glacial, right. In, in the way that you think about your position, right. You, you're open to the fact that, you know, there may be more than one right way to raise Billy. And and maybe yes. mine is not the exclusive way. Do you have a, another way that, that uh, social ones can do their
2: work? Yeah, I think what I would add to that or even maybe sort of just uh, highlight in what you're saying is recognizing that they have value even more than being the person who knows the right way. Oh, that's mm. good you know, like seeing themselves all more aspects of themselves more than the role model or the teacher or the one who's going to show or know the right way and recognizing, because again, I think sometimes there can be this underlying thing with, with the social ones who often had to grow up or became adult at an early age of like, you can relax, you you don't have to, you have you so many more things, dimensions to you than being the person who has to show people the right way to do things at, in order to have value or have purpose or have a way of, of finding well-being in life.
3: Mm,
1: great. So and let's just end up with one-to-one-ones, a transformational path for those folks.
2: I think balancing. um the, the criticism of others or the, the, ref, the, the drive to reform and fix things out there in the world with um, looking at yourself and uh, being more uh, humble about, you know, kind of bringing the right way to the world. Mm-hmm. Sometimes uh, one-to-one ones can have this sense of like they're calling on a higher moral authority and that's why they can say the way it should be. Um, And so being a little more humble, allowing yourself to um, continue to channel your anger in very conscious ways, but in in ways that also take into account, um, you know, your own fallibility, let's say. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, without getting too self-critical, because even even one-to-one ones can also be self-critical, and they also need to not be so hard on themselves and just... Uh, have more fun and be lighter and not so serious and zealous, mm. uh, but sort of lighten up a little bit and recognize yes. that um, other people may have ways they want to be and that sometimes it's not your job uh, to, to fix everything out there.
1: You know, it's interesting. I was just thinking about and I don't know if, if, if this person was a one to one one, but I was just thinking about the end of Schindler's list mm-hmm. and where Schindler is reflecting and he's saying, I could, could have done, done more. more. Mm. I could have done more. And there's that possible, I, I think, we could say that for a one-to-one, regardless whether or not he was, a one-to-one, Nader could have gotten to the end of his life. Gandhi could have got, you know, could have gotten on the end of his life and said, I could have done more. And you, you can hear that kind of self-criticism where I, I didn't finish the job. It, it's still not right, you know?
3: Well, this has been
1: incredible. And I want to, as I close, just say, uh, hearkening back to something I mentioned earlier, which is is the Enneagram fundamentally negative? And I I, want to say about that, that at one level, when uh, that we need to be a little unapologetic about the fact that the Enneagram spends a lot of time on the shadow side of types. Mm -hmm. Um, There's no sense, you know, this ain't StrengthsFinder. You know what I mean? (laughs) And... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she like that one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you, you know, not to say that StrengthsFinder doesn't have its value. I'm not, I don't, I, you know, right. I'm in favor of anything that of raises people's self-awareness. At the same time, I would say that part of the value of the Enneagram is, is, you know, uh, like the old expression, uh, the truth will set you free, mm-hmm. but first it's going to make you miserable. Yeah. Right. In David Foster Wallace's uh, famous uh, expression. That 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 we have to realize that uh, the Enneagram um, part of its gift is that it's going to surface parts of who we are that we need to confront and we need to love and compassionately deal with in order to become the highest expression of who mm-hmm. we are.
0: Can I say a little something on that yeah uh the 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 way that hits me is you can't get to true self unless you go through shadow, so it's like our true self is a mixture of our ideal and our shadow. And so it's really uh, offering us a gift this this focus on the shadow through the uh, the enneagram. Mm-hmm. So I always see it as you know ultimately a positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. great.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which is why I love talking to you guys about the enneagram because you do hear this a lot, like oh, it's kind of negative, but we're talking about the ego here, mm-hmm. you know? And while we, of course, don't wanna demonize the ego, we need we need our personality or our ego. We need that. Mm-hmm. That's part of how we get functional in the world. However, when we're seeking to go beyond it, when we're really wanting to find out all of who we are, we need, exactly like you're saying, we need to look at the ways we limit ourselves, mm-hmm. the ways we get stuck in habitual patterns, the shadow parts of ourselves, and it's not gonna be fun Uh, And we do need to let people know that. And, and one of the, one of the reasons why I like your work is that you kind of let people know that, but in a really kind way, Mm -hmm. you know, you say, okay, this isn't going to be all good news, but it's going to be good for you in the overall picture. Exactly. Like Anthony just said, like Mm -hmm. there's a happy ending, Mm -hmm. uh, but it's going to be hard and you know, no pain, no gain a little bit, uh, and and I want to just uh, because you brought up that great quote, um, Gloria Steinem has. Uh a little twist on it that's very one-ish, I think, which she says, the truth shall set you free, but first it will piss you off. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs)
1: Exactly. Hey, uh, Typology Tribe, uh, B and I are going to be doing a couple of these episodes together, and I think if it's as rich as this one has been, Mm. we're going to have a really, really good time. I want you to remember these words as we go out may you have love may you have joy may you have peace may you have healing may you have rest until next time <laughs> that was <brave>. great
2: <laughs> yeah yeah really fine.